hands make slight work and this is a big job producing this podcast, but I've got help and the Vancouver Island Works Project has been providing a great deal of help by creating for me a premium website, biwproject.com for a premium website for yourself. Don't go to just Wix or something like that where you bang it together. Everybody thinks they can do a DIY website and yeah, you can, but it's going to be missing so much stuff. If you want a K car, go get a K car. If you want a Lamborghini, you go to viwproject.com. Thank you, Manny Mandruziak, who I served with, who made this possible. Thank you for your support of Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast by providing us with a beautiful premium website. That website is operationtraumarecovery.org. Operationtraumarecovery.org is the website that they made for us. And viwproject.com is where you go to get one for yourself. Victor India Whiskey Project.com. Three, two, one. Curtis Sanheim, thank you so much for, for coming to the studio, brother. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. We're in snowy Okotoks this morning. Snowy Okotoks, indeed. I am so looking forward to, to our conversation today. It's a unique one because in 65, 66 episodes, whatever it is, I've never talked about uh, faith as a modality of healing. Right. This one that I've got everything else from equine therapy and, and everything else, but uh, haven't talked about faith-based healing. And I can't think of anybody better than yourself. Uh, well, uh, a little bit of background on the faith-based healing. So I joined the military in 1990. I swore in in Regina. In 91, I started doing my training in Dundurn. Uh, 91 that summer, I did my infantry course. And then I stayed in until 2005. I did my parachute course, machine gun course. I was a sergeant. And then in 2005, I had a dramatic conversion where I had started going to a Pentecostal church and I had a big change in life. And I knew I always wanted to do that. I was 33. And I just I remember two weeks after coming to, to church, I just bought a Bible and I went to my commanding officer's office and I said, you know, I'm going to quit the military. It's training to go to Afghanistan, you know, and small reserve regiment there's only so many sergeants and it takes a while to build a sergeant so you've got a lot of uh, background and understanding there and he encouraged me and actually said you know what it's it's if you feel a call it's better to serve god than serve in the military if that's what you feel called to do and so he really pushed for that and encouraged that and so um, as soon as i left the military i got into working with the homeless uh, and i did about eight years of downtown homeless ministry in calgary where i brought probably 650 maybe 700 homeless people to church over the next eight years you know a couple at a time bring them every weekend to a service uh and then i started doing prison ministry in 2005 uh, i came to church so it would have been early 2006 i started doing prison ministry so it's been 14 years of going to drumheller prison to visit inmates and then when they get out working with them when they get out so being an ex-army guy and having kind of struggled with a little bit of ptsd symptoms in my 20s when i got back from croatia um this has been very revelatory for me because the maybe the symptoms or the struggles that I had when I was in my 20s, um, I fully comprehend now or understand now, and I can kind of put a, a word on it. 
And then spiritually, the problem with modern Christianity is it doesn't work very well um, in the way that it's laid out and the way that it's structured, which I kind of wanted to discuss a little bit in this conversation and how it can help, but unfortunately it's not because it's not actually set up the way it should be to help, which is interesting why we can turn to other things that are way better in that sense. So that's something I'd like to maybe discuss, I guess. <laughs> sure. I just want to circle back. When you're in your 20s, what uh, PTSD symptoms did you have? And did you know that that's what it was back then? Well, and it was interesting because I had a really tough time growing up. I had uh, a very tough father who was very strict and lots of yelling and arguing in the house and lots of verbal, you will or else. And so you kind of live under a different umbrella at home than probably is is good or conducive to good growth. So I, I don't know if it was a combination of the tour or a, a culmination of thinking I'm going to die when I go to Croatia and then all that stuff that I dealt with from childhood and had excessive bullying from high school. Um, my older brother was just relentless. Like I just had a lot of emotional problems as a young emotional boy. And then I joined the army. <laughs> so I went from kind of a you will or else type of a t- dictatorship type of a style of learning and teaching under home and under really rough teachers in the old school system in small town Saskatchewan where it was like dragged by the the shirt collar into the office and strapped I got strapped many times on the hand with the old strap and that sort of thing and so very rough discipline in those days to joining the army right at 18 and then it was you know you will or else in the military and so then when I got back from Croatia it was just a feeling of uh I don't know listlessness um what do I do now? Uh, inadequacies, that sort of stuff. I wouldn't say it lasted super long because I did get into an incredible amount of stuff that I filled my 20s with. But it was, yeah, just uh, depression, uh, sadness, listlessness, uh, those sorts of things, right? Just wondering what if, wondering what to do. Uh, breaking up with my relationship, I was engaged. I just didn't feel worthy enough to be with that person, that sort of thing. There was all kinds of things like that that happened when I got back. So, uh, And then probably like I was saying earlier when we talked uh, bef- uh, before off mic about um, midlife crisis with men, typically with men, not until they're in the middle of their life can they actually start to deal with and understand their emotions and their stuff from their 20s and 30s sometimes. So when they say men have a midlife crisis, I don't think it's a midlife crisis as much as it's a first time in your life being able to fully comprehend everything that you went through. So we're in our 40s now, and so there's this understanding of our lives better than we were maybe able to when we were in our 20s or put words to it, you know, be able to put words to it. So, yeah, so the faith thing, um, like I said, I came to that in 2005, and it's 2020, so it's been 15 years of really studying the faith thing from a healing perspective and kind of what's missing in the Christian community and why it's probably not working. And Christianity probably isn't working for most people uh, who need to heal, which is very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate because I've found the greatest thing in it, but not many people have. So a lot of people are religious. We have tons of religious people. We have many people that go to church all their lives, but it's a, it's a structure and it's maybe not a personal relationship a personal feeling um a lifestyle or a calmness it's just something they do which gives them a little bit of comfort i don't know if that makes sense but circling back to uh late life realizations um what some people call a midlife crisis and whatnot it is not uncommon to go undiagnosed 
from PTSD for over 20 years. Uh, I have met Very people true. that went 30 or 40 years before they finally connected the dots. And some of that is the defense mechanisms wearing off. Uh, when you go through an extreme experience, especially in a combat zone, and I mean, Croatia was a genocide. They called it an ethnic cleansing, but mm-hmm. that was a euphemism for genocide. And it was a horrific thing. And to deal with that when you're in it, you have to disassociate. And, and your mind kind of does it automatically in a lot of cases where you minimize, trivialize, and diminish what's actually going on. And that defense mechanism cannot wear off for 20 or 30 years. And when that defense mechanism starts to wear off, you start to get the perspective of, whoa, that's what happened? I, that's what I saw? That's what happened to me? Well, it, it's interesting that you touch on that. Now, it didn't happen to me that way, uh, but uh, I know some friends for sure. There was a guy that I served with that was in Croatia seeing some of the same events, and uh, we were doing a paintball drill down in the basement of the armories in Mawada in Calgary, and we were doing entry drills, and they had guys in there in bunkers shooting back, you know, and you have paintball gear on so that you can actually feel what it's like getting shot at. We do a lot of blank training and we do miles gear training with laser gear, but we don't do a lot of paintball because paintball is not really realistic at any long distance. No. But doing short entry room drills, it was very realistic. And this fellow, again, he's about my age and he was in his 30s at the time and he went to go in the room and his body just froze and his body would not move. And it's like he was saying, my mind is telling my body to move, but it won't go. Like it just won't do it. He just shut down emotionally and finally got understood and diagnosed with PTSD and that had happened when he was 20 and he's in his mid thirties. Right. So, uh, that's just one example. I mean, for me personally, um, probably a lot of those feelings and emotions I was finally able to talk about or understand when I'm in my forties, I'm 48 now. Uh, but yeah, I think putting them on hold almost or burying them or not dealing with them. Right. Um, I remember one moment. So I was probably, 17 and i had a 303 british lee enfield rifle bolt action rifle uh five round mag iron sights and i was standing on the edge of a clearing of trees and a bunch of my relatives my dad and my uncle were pushing bush through the trees for deer hunting and they were at the far end pushing through the bush to make noise and chase the deer out towards the guy with the rifle to shoot him and a deer come running out stopped and stood and looked at me from a side profile shot about 70 yards perfect shot I shot a little high, not quite thinking the bullet would drop uh, that much, and it didn't really drop, and I hit him right in the spine and shot my first deer, and I was all excited. They pushed the bush out, a deer came out, and I shot him. And then we're in Croatia um, just a couple years later. I'm in Croatia. I've got a, a machine gun, and I'm standing on this highway, and there was this incident where 10 Croatian cops had gotten shot in a van, in, in a vehicle, they got shot through the head, the driver and the guy in the front, and they careened into the ditch, and all eight guys in the back got shot up full of bullet holes, and almost all of them died on scene. And we were looking for those three snipers that attacked them, and they, you could see all the shell casings up on the hill where they had shot from. And so they were basically pushing bush, if you will, like deer hunting, and all of us were formed a cordon line down this highway. And I'm standing there, and I'm like, this is exactly the same as this deer hunting moment. Only these can shoot back and they just killed like 10 guys, right? And they know the land better than we do. We just got here. We don't know any of the nooks and crannies or the hills or the valleys or the trees or anything. And so it was just that moment where, like, I hope 
I don't get shot first, but you know, somebody's going to get shot first. And that's probably the only way we're going to find them is through somebody going down. And so you just have this moment of, I wouldn't say it was fear. It was just similarities from youth. And then, so that was when I was 20. Again, that was on the tour. And then I didn't think about that again until, I don't know, probably an interview. Somebody talked to me. I think it was uh, Mike Vernon from the Calgary Highlanders interviewed for a documentary that he did. I don't know if you saw that that documentary not yet and uh it was an incredible and he just interviewed uh i think it was 48 canadian reservists from alberta that had done tours and he interviewed them about their physical and personal and emotional experiences and uh and it was kind of the first time i'd ever really talked about that and so it was really interesting doing that interview now that interview was about an hour and a half long because i'm a talkative fellow so he asked me (laughs) lots of questions and i'm very talkative and he burned a cd and he gave me the the cd for it or the yeah, DVD or the CD for it. And so I remember my parents had come out. This was about four years ago, probably. And my parents had come out to visit. And I had the laptop sitting on the table. And I had the DVD in there. And I had kind of forgot about it because it wasn't that poignant to me. But it was a pretty good interview, I guess. And he'd asked me all kinds of questions about the tour and about afterwards and everything. And I said, oh, mom and dad, if you want, you know, there's this little video interview that I did with a CBC reporter and it's on really good quality camera and really good quality recording equipment. And he interviewed me about my tour to Croatia. And so my wife and I were there in the house doing some things and mom and dad were staying over. So they were just having their breakfast and they had some coffee. And so they just opened the computer and I turned it on for them and they started watching this interview. Well, I never really noticed the impact, but that it had of me not talking about it all those years. But this was the first time, 25 years later, that they'd ever heard anything about my tour. And I realized I'd never talked one minute about it to them. And so they watched dumbfoundedly with this ashen look on their faces, just staring at this interview of me talking about this tour that they had never heard from their son for 25 years, right? So it was, that to me was really like, wow, I guess I I really haven't talked about it. (laughs) I haven't really talked about it other than, going over it with military guys and you know on remembrance day things like that maybe just the odd conversation here and there right so you think about world war ii vets and you think about guys who've gone through battle a long time you know especially our afghanistan vets they've gone through a lot of gunfights compared to what we did in croatia Mm -hmm. and uh i know now i guess what that must feel like right so i mean i didn't go to war uh, one year and not come back for three or four years like they did so that you know we think wow well that's what we've done is nothing compared to what they've done and in a sense i suppose maybe not as much as the fighting but it certainly is in the emotional content of people right so and when you look at guys who got back from world war ii for example they would just call it shell-shocked or they would you know say oh they got a little messed up over there and they would never deal with it they would just drink <laughs> now, it, uh, what you're touching on is known as comparative trauma. And right. there tends to be two types of veterans, those that uh, trivialize their service and those that exaggerate it. And uh, I think those that trivialize your service are, are even more common that say, oh, you know, I didn't do as much as this person and, or as much as that person. But they, at the end of the day, uh, if your legs get blown off, nobody says, oh, man, you know, you must have had weak legs or, right. or, or why did you get your legs blown off on that tour? That wasn't that bad of a tour, you know, yeah. why? Um, and like, it's, it's the same with trauma injuries. It, you're injured or you're not. 
And if you got injured, it doesn't matter if it was a gentle tour or if it was a crazy tour or are you injured? Are you suffering? Are you in pain? Right. That's it. It's, right. a, it's, it's a yes or no kind of line. But we do have that tendency to say, well, what I went through wasn't as bad as this guy. Well, it doesn't matter. Did your legs get blown off? <laughs> yeah. Like you know? it'd be interesting to say, well, my legs got blown off. Yeah. But that guy died. So his, his tour was much worse, you know, or something like that. Like Mark, yeah. Mark came home uh, to Calgary with no legs, right? Yeah. Low, both his legs below the knees were blown off. In an Mark Campbell? Uh, Fuchko. Okay. Fuchko, yeah. Oh, I've yeah. met him. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you say, well, my tour wasn't like his. I mean, look, he lost both his legs. And so I understand the point, I guess, for me, um, what was so interesting, I actually, as a preacher now, I preach, and I did preach a sermon one night in a home church, and I asked a guy to come with, uh, with me from the tour who lives really close to me. A friend of mine came and sat in on the, the little sermon. And the whole sermon was how God had protected me. So, for example, those 10 guys that had gotten assassinated in broad daylight right on the street, basically, um, I didn't go up to where the vehicle was. I didn't try to patch the bodies. I didn't try to, like, literally my friend was, like, sticking his fingers in the holes trying to stop the bleeding. Mm-hmm. We were on the road cordoning off the area and looking for the looking for the shooters. Um, the wells that people would dump bodies down wells and that sort of thing. I wasn't there for that. I actually was on my two week block leave when we found, when some of the guys in the platoon found a bunch of that stuff. Um, so there was these moments all the way through the tour where I felt like God had his hand on me that I never got to see any of that stuff. There's probably say 15 major incidents that I could have really partaken in that I was just on the periphery of, but not directly involved in. And there's others that had that experience. And then there's others that are involved in all of those. And their minds are just really, really wrecked and really upset and never been able to come to grips with it. So I guess for me, I've come to then understanding that not diminishing what I've done, but I know that I was kept. And I think God knows me very well that I probably wouldn't have been able to handle as well as some other people. Mm-hmm. Because I am such an emotional kid at the time. I was only 20. I was, we were just a kid, right? And I had such a traumatic i guess in my own mind youth even though it wasn't like uh, i was being beaten all the time and any of that you know it wasn't a horrible childhood it was just something that because i'm so sensitive and emotional myself as a person um that i kind of got held back from some of the the worst events that happened on the tour even though they were there on the periphery and i was always on the edge of it i wasn't directly involved in it for example it was the same with us uh with body recoveries we were qrf which is quick reaction force um for months which you shouldn't be because you're out of state a high high alert right um but we were uh, our platoon was um set aside we were on alert to do a body recovery of a village that got wiped out and as the days go by, it's like, well, they're getting pretty ripe. Can we do this sooner instead <laughs> gonna of later? We're going to have to do it soon. <laughs> yeah, I want to do it sooner, not later. And then we never ended up doing it. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I know several people that have done body recoveries right. and uh, the big pits full of bodies and they were guarding them. And, um, but something I, wa- I, I want to uh, share with you, though, is that although I didn't see those pits, uh, the fact that you and I know that they're real because we were there is enough. Right, because it's, it's different being there, and and it's and you're just half a step removed from it. That's different than reading about it in a book or seeing it in a news report. 
Right, you which know. is exactly the point, it's I a guess. Lot, it's a lot yeah. more real for you and I mm-hmm. than it is for anybody else. So just knowing that that stuff is real is enough to cause an injury. And a lot of people, uh, uh, they, they diminish that experience. Right. But there's no need to, because like, yeah. you know that it's real. Well, and yeah, so there'd be a lot of guys that I served with and you think, well, they served alongside of me and I don't think we got really into it very bad. So I would think in my mind, wow, I wonder, you know, you almost wonder, are they, are they making that up or this and that? And you, you kind of gain an understanding later exactly of what you're saying that even though it, you weren't maybe in that gunfight, but it happened right beside you. Like I remember when Medak was going on and they were telling us stories of what that fight was all about, like during it, because it was like 18 hours. And I'm just going to put a little, just make sure we don't get too explicit. One yeah. of the promises of the show is that uh, we don't do a lot of war porn, and we're really skating a thin line. There. Okay, sure. Because sure. Uh, the people that are tuning in, are um, we, we don't want to send them into a tailspin. Yeah, no worries, no worries. So I just remember some of the stories of telling us about it, and like you just said, you're on the edge of it, and you're not actually involved in it, and you're not actually doing it. But then your mind goes to, well, that could be me next, or that's my turn next, or that's mm-hmm. going to happen to us now. Um, I know when we went there, uh, so the first tour was pretty rough. They had a lot of shooting. They were getting shot at a lot. They were returning fire quite a bit. Um, there was a scene that I heard of where a guy had gotten shot in the street, and another guy had ran across, and bullets were bouncing off the pavement, and he'd grabbed his buddy and pulled him to safety. And so we had an impression when we were going to Croatia that we were going to go and there would be fighting and maybe 10% of us would be wounded or killed. We just had this concept. So you just have a bit of a nervous energy. Um, I remember I remember flying there. We flew from Winnipeg to Zagreb. I forget how long the flight was, 13 hours or 15 hours or whatever it was. And we had been up the night before in Winnipeg drinking and having a bit of a party and a farewell and that sort of thing. And, oh, no problem, I'll sleep on the plane. It's like 13 hours, like I'm going to sleep. I don't think any of us slept like we were just we just had this nervous energy we're just we're flying into a war zone and yes we're peacekeeping and it's not going to be as bad as we think or is it right and you just didn't know and so I remember as well before I left um, I wrote a letter to my parents and I wrote a letter to my sister and one to my brother and I think I wrote a mass letter to everybody saying how much I love them and cared about them and if I don't come back sort of thing it was kind of like well just in case you know I just want you to know how much I care about you guys and that sort of thing so you you do have a weird sense of it affects you, like you said, whether you were right in that fight or not, whether you were doing body recovery or it happened around you, mm-hmm. whether you were seeing people thrown into a well that had been killed or you just talked to your buddies who just did it, you know, yeah. and you didn't. You, you're literally, you're involved. And so your mind can go to those places, whether it directly or indirectly it's still it's like an artillery shell it's it might not get the guy right there but the shrapnel will get the guy 20 feet away so it's an emotional shell that can blanket you really is that can blanket you that's a good way to put it so no it really is now um when you started noticing that you're having issues i mean in hindsight i i could see all the symptoms that i had i was a hot mess i was uh, a lot of violence you know, a lot of uh, punching holes in walls and I punched out a windshield once, uh, uh, a lot of fist fights that I got into uh, until my late 20s when I finally stopped doing that silliness. Um, and high sexual activity, you know, I, uh, I was terrible with the, with the women, you know, and um, uh, there was lots of that going on. And these are all fairly common things of high-octane 
people that, that have been through super high octane experiences. Once you started seeing this in yourself, how did faith bring you back to center? How did faith and, and your, your Christianity help you heal as a modality? Well, it's interesting because, uh, Anger would have been my main issue, just arguing with girlfriends. And I had lots of girlfriends, lots of women uh, experiences, like I said, same, very similar to yourself there. Not fighting. Um, I, for some reason, I always held back on the fighting because I'm, I'm six foot, uh, you know, 200 pounds, very strong. I took boxing up when I got back and I boxed for a little bit and I just actually turned from it because I knew I didn't want to go down that road. So I turned my energies to going to the bars and dancing and, and women and that sort of thing. And um, as a way to, I guess, cope, you know, and, uh, people say, did you have an addiction? Well, that probably would have been as close as it was, right? It was just, yeah. uh, feeding the flesh to make yourself feel better. Um, and that's really what it was, was making yourself feel better. So, but then I got into rodeo. I did bull riding and saddle bronc riding for the next 10 years after I got back. So I went from one high adrenaline event mm-hmm. to high adrenaline fearing death for the next 10 years. Cause that's literally what you worry about in rodeo so i overcame fear all the time each weekend i would ride two or three rodeos in the summer months for three four months a year for the next 10 years and then i would go to practices on tuesday nights uh, up at old's college they had an indoor arena i would go to practices there and i'd get on two or three bucking horses maybe a bull maybe two bulls in an evening during the week where you could be hurt at any time and you know fortunately for me i i never got hurt but every single time i rode I was sleeping around, I was drinking, I was going to the bars, I wasn't being moral, and I was lying a lot. <laughs> and every single time I rode, I would pray and ask God to look after me and not get me hurt, and if I get hurt, to please help me and protect me. And I would always take my cowboy hat off and kneel down and pray before I rode. And I rode about 650 bucking horses and maybe 350 bulls in that 10-year span, which is an incredible amount, a like 1,000 rides at least. And I never missed a day of work for an injury. The entire time I broke my nose, I broke a rib, I had bumps and bruises and I was sore often, but I never was hurt dramatically or seriously. And there's not too many rodeo guys that can ever say that. Like every rodeo guy I know, they can list off all their injuries. So how faith kind of helped me get through the understanding, I think it was a combination of two things. I don't think I really dealt with the fear or the worry because I kept doing something fearful for the next 10 years. Right. And then I did my parachute course, and on my third jump, I broke my leg. So it was a very fearful moment, and it was that moment that actually got me thinking about God because I was in the airplane. There was 32 jumpers on a side. I was the chalk leader of the second group, so there's 16 jumps per side on the, on the aircraft. And I was the chalk leader on the second group. And I just had this overwhelming fear as we circled the drop zone that I was going to die. My chute wasn't going to open properly and I was going to die. And I actually, in the aircraft, started repenting and praying and asking God to protect me and not let me die. And if I die, to let me go to heaven and forgive me for all my lies and all my womanizing. And I just had this absolute moment of what Christians would call real repentance. In the aircraft, circling the drop zone with all these jumpers. It's dark. It's in the morning. It's about 8 in the morning as the sun's coming up in December in Trenton, Ontario. The doors are open on the aircraft, so it's cold in there. you got all your winter gear on. You're doing 250 kilometers an hour in the airplane, circling the drop zone. And I, I also thought, wow, if I was in the first chalk, in the first group of 16 guys, I would really be in trouble. Uh, but I just felt better because I was in the second chalk. Well, as we circled the drop zone, we're getting ready. It wasn't quite ready yet. And there was some wind gusts or something, so they had to wait. And one of the guys in the front group 
had to take a knee and started getting sick to his stomach like he's going to throw up. So they unhooked him from the static line, sat him down, strapped him in with a seatbelt, and then I moved up into the first group. Oh, boy. And I just felt in my mind, if I was in the first group, something bad's going to happen, but it's okay, I'm in the second group. Well, now I move up, and I'm the last guy in the first group. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So now it just really overwhelmingly hit me. Next thing you know, the green light is on, and we're out the door, and you don't pause, you just go. Yeah. So I get out, and I check my canopy. The first thing you do is you count to four, you tuck your head while your chute deploys, it's on a static line. And then I check my canopy, and I couldn't even lift my head because the lines were twisted so bad. Oh, no. So one of the drills, that happens, your lines twist. So you, you grab your risers and you pull apart and you kick your feet and you try to untangle like a little mouse on a string or something. And so I was slowly untangling, but I was the last guy out. And I looked up and all the other jumpers were way in the air above me. So I'm like, well, that's not good. Like I'm flying, falling way too fast, right? But because I'm turning slowly, I couldn't pull my reserve chute because it would collapse the main because I was turning slowly. So I just had to wait it out. So and I think it was on the ground in about 25 seconds, uh, broke my right leg, and I'm laying on the drop zone. Because you hit so hard. Just hit so hard. I had my backpack on still, so you're supposed to jettison your pack in front of you, and the, the pack was right here in, in front, uh, just under the belt in the front, and it was on two clips, and you're supposed to jettison it. But it was coming so fast, I had just got my shoulder load off, which is snowshoes and rifle, and I had jettisoned that, and then I didn't even have time. I looked down, and I'm like, it's too you're, late. you're falling at 15 feet a second, so... Bam, hit the ground, broke my leg. So I'm laying on the ground and I'm like, oh. Who Lord. packed this chute? Yeah, no, it wasn't that. It was just like, and the chute opened fully probably two to three seconds before I hit the ground. Oh my God. So it did open fully and it was just twisted. And it was one of the drills. It was one of the drills you train for. But so speaking of fear, well, then that was my third jump. So to qualify for as a parachutist, you need five. So I'm like, so they said, well, anytime within the next year, once you heal up, you can come back. You don't have to do the whole course again. You just have to do a day of refresher training, and then you can go and get your final two jumps. So a year later, I go back. We'll talk about you know getting back on the horse that bucked you off. Like when I was yeah. a kid, Dad was a horse trainer, and if a horse bucked you off, you got back on as soon as you could so that the horse didn't learn, oh, if I buck and get the rider off, he'll stop riding me. If I buck and he comes off, he gets right back on. The horse will learn, oh, okay, well, bucking's not a solution, so I need to do something else. I need to listen. So it was kind of that same concept, get back on the horse that bucks you off. So I had two more jumps to go. So I was very nervous flying back to Ontario the next time for my jump course. My wife was probably more nervous than I was because she was at home when she got the call from the Trenton Hospital. Oh, hey, this is nurse so-and-so from Trenton Hospital just letting you know your husband's okay. We were taking him in for surgery. <laughs> She's like, what happened, right? She knew I was on my parachute course. She goes, oh, he broke his leg. We're going to have to put a plate in and that sort of thing. And they put a plate in and five screws to put my fibula back together. Um, so it was more nervous for her, but the both of us feeling that emotion, going back and getting those final two jumps. So I know this is a long uh, description of no, the, the question good. you asked, but um, it's interesting. So when I, went, when I went back, here's a funny story. So when I went back, they had these new shoots that they had just got, and they had two silk canopies kind of together, a smaller one above the bigger one. And we have circular silk canopies, and we drop really fast in the Canadian military, like in, in all parachutists. You drop really fast. Lawn darts. You, you don't have toggles. You can't flare at the end. If you've ever seen any videos of people skydiving, they have a rectangular chute. They have two handles. And they can steer quite good. And then when they get to the ground, they flare up the chute. And they just literally, sometimes if you're really good at it, you can just run and stop and you're standing up and it's all good. 
not with parachutes uh, in the military. You just drop like a lawn dart. You put your feet and knees together and you hit and roll and try not to break yourself. And many people do, like myself. So anyway, they had these new shoots. They said, oh, you drop much slower with these new shoots. But we don't have enough for everybody, so only the instructors are getting them. <laughs> but the troops all have to use the old ones, right? So that's no problem. So the instructor shoots are over there lined up in the platoon and mine are here. And the only difference in those shoots and the old shoots looking at the bag sitting on the ground on the tarmac is the last three serial numbers are a little bit different on a 10 digit serial number bag. So when nobody was looking, I went over and I took the warrant officer's shoot and I switched it for mine and I did that twice. I had a really nice landing both times and they never noticed. So yeah, it worked. worked And and he's wondering, like, man, I think I gained some weight. I think I got the old shoot. What the heck happened? But you never know until you open your canopy and then you realize, oh, some jerk switched out my shoot. Uh, so anyway, so I accomplished the five jumps. I got my wings. Uh, but the fear factor, again, when you look at all the things I did over my 20s and into my early 30s doing rodeo continually. So then in 2005, when I came to church and I came to faith full time and I quit the military and I quit rodeo, which were kind of the two fear factor issues that I had done in my life, real aggressive things. <sighs> What was so fantastic for me was the part of faith that's missing, I think, in most mainstream Christianity that I did, that I experienced, that actually got me away from PTSD symptoms that never really hit me, was that I started doing works of love or acts of service. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard of the five love languages. I have. It's a very famous book, and so a lot of people have. But I started doing acts of service, which is what Christianity is supposed to do. And that's the struggle, I think, as to why what I'd like to talk about a little bit here is why Christianity in its mainstream form right now doesn't work to help heal the way it should emotionally. But what I found was I had an experience with God. I, got, I received the baptism of the Spirit. I got baptized in Jesus' name. I, I had my sins washed away. I felt incredible. But what was the healing element was I started volunteering at a homeless shelter. I started volunteering in prisons. I started helping people that were very poor, very unwell, very uh, not well off at all. And it was through the actions of kindness of doing good works. The good works didn't save me, but once I got saved, I started doing good works. It was that that kind of all those years of strife at home, uh, the struggles I had with fear, the struggles I had with the military, all that, it kind of, I would say, dissipated as I started detoxifying it all and the kindness started exuding where the, the strength and the overcoming fear once was. But what was interesting was I was fearless in helping others now because I had battled against fear and overcome it for all of my 20s. On the tour and then in the military the rest of the time, the fear of the parachute jumping and having to go back and do it, the rodeo getting on bulls and bucking horses every weekend, which was self-induced fear. It wasn't something that I was doing like in the military. And then as that started to dissipate because of doing kind works for others, um, that's, I think, to me, where the real healing of Christianity is missing in today's Christianity, where people simply go to a building and are religious, but they're not doing the acts of service with the homeless, the poor, prisoners, the sick, the elderly, doing some kind giving back. Now, there are many people that do that, so I'm not talking about the people that do that. I'm talking about those that don't and why it doesn't seem to be working. One of the mantras that I've said again and again is that recovery is an activity, not an event. Right. So many people think, well, if I do these checkbox activities, it's just going to happen. No, it's not. You have to change your behavior. You have to actually 
do something to recover. And that something that you're doing has to be a habit. You can't just go uh, to a therapist once and you're fixed. It's lifestyle changes. And you're saying the same thing. Uh, only only uh, your your faith and the church was the sort of the foundation for it, but really you're doing healthy, good things with or without a church. You know, uh, you don't need a church to do that, but you're doing, you're, you're giving back and you're replacing your service of country with service of community Well, and service to your fellow man. It's interesting because in the Christian community, we would call this, you need to repent. Mm. And people think, okay, well, what does repentance mean? What's interesting is in the Canadian Army, we say about turn when you're facing one way and you do 180 and look the other way. Mm -hmm. In the American Army, we say about face and they turn around and do 180. In the British Army, they still say repent, which is to turn around 180 degrees. I was wondering where you're going with (laughs) that. Yeah, so they literally say, right, troops, repent, and you turn around. That's what it means. So the repent is not saying sorry as much as it is turn from what you were doing and go 180 degrees the other direction and do something different. Which is still an activity, not a belief. It it is the activity and not the belief, and that's the struggle. It's not, I believe in God, it's prove it. And that shows you believe in God. If you say you believe in God, but you're a lying, dirtbag, cheating, beating your wife, beating your kids kind of guy, you're not a believer then. And this is exactly, from anybody that uh, I know that, that... would be tempted to maybe go to church or tempted uh, uh, to consider Christianity. It's all the hypocrisy that keeps them away. It's what's kept me away. Absolutely. And uh, because it's like, well, you have to believe in Christ. Well, I don't think God gives a rat's ass what you believe, honestly. Um, I really don't. And maybe I'm dead wrong about that, but that's my personal belief. But I don't God think created he, the rat's ass, by the way. Well, there you go. <laughs> but I, I don't think he cares about what you believe. I think he cares about what you do and how you act and how you behave and how you treat other human beings. Well, it's fantastic how you're wording that um, from kind of your perspective. Um, it is important what we believe because what we believe is going to mandate what we do. Well, think, feel, do. But think and feel. So first yeah. you're going to think it. And so, for example, our service with the military, I remember when I joined the army, I wanted to join for actually good causes. I didn't want to join because the uniforms look good. I didn't want to join so I could get medals. I literally felt like I wanted to be all that I could be, be strong, be a server to the country and a servant. And I went to Croatia for the same reason as most of my military friends would admit that that's really the reason that they did. So we thought it, then we went and did it really fun. And the thinking and the acting is the concept that all of us need to do. And so it needs to start in the brain, start in the heart, start in the mind, but then it can't stay there. It has to act it out. So uh, stolen Valor is something you touched on earlier. And Stolen Valor, we talked off mic earlier. And there's a lot of that going on. Um, but it's one thing to say you are and not do it. So, for example, I'm a rodeo cowboy. I did rodeo for 10 years. Um, and so I wear, you know, belt and a buckle and jeans and hat and boots during Stampede, Calgary Stampede time in Calgary, except for right now, of course, with COVID shutdown, everybody dresses like cowboys. Well, they're just what we call wannabes. They're just pretend. They're just having fun and pretending. Um, and so it's the same with mainstream Christianity, I find, mainstream Christianity. We're supposed to actually think and act and help. And in the helping and in the doing is where you find the actual fulfillment. In the being religious, you can find a little bit of comfort, I find, but it's not really the fulfillment of what you're actually looking for. So the whole point of healing and the whole point of what I was talking about earlier about turning and repenting is not saying sorry 
it's more turning from one lifestyle to another and doing acts of service. I think that's really the part that's missing. The entire part of the Christian faith is supposed to be acts of service. It's supposed to be gathering together, yes, which is very stressed, gather together or else. But the gathering together is more like what I call in football. You know, you have the huddle. Everybody Mm -hmm. huddles together. The quarterback gives you the play. So let's say the quarterback's maybe the guy speaking or the pastor or somebody who's giving some instruction. So he just gives instruction, but he's on the team. He's not above the team. He needs to work with the team. So he's not. And then over on the sidelines, you got the general manager, the coach. That's God. So God's the coach telling the quarterback and the team what to do. The pastor is giving the instructions. He's the quarterback. The team comes in for the huddle. That's maybe the church gathering, which you can do in a home. You can do in a park. You can do in a building if you want. Wherever you do your gathering, that's not the most important part. The huddle is not the most important part of the game. That's just where you get the instruction. The most important part of the game is when you say break and they go out and they do the play on the field. It's the doing the play that's the most important part of Christianity. Hear the huddle. Go to the huddle. Great. Break from the huddle and go out and do the actions. If you don't do the actions, there's no point. So that's really what this whole thing is about from a Christian and a faith healing perspective is it's not just about inner dialogue. It's not just about uh, thinking it's about the actions. It's about the turning. So, for example, one of the great tenets of the Christian faith is prayer. Talking to God, you've got to communicate. And that's fantastic. And we need to pray, but we need to get out and do actions. It's one thing to communicate. It's another thing to go do the actions. When you talk to the commanding officer and you get the instructions, you go to orders group, you get the orders. Great. Go perform the orders, or it doesn't matter what the orders were, right? If there's a patrol that needs to be done, go do the physical patrol. Hear the orders group, get the instruction, and get grounded, then go out and do the work. So that's really what needs to happen in the Christian faith. It isn't happening. So, Well, that's yeah. why I've said uh, that you're the most Christian guy that I know, <laughs> because you, you actually walk the walk. You don't just talk the talk. And it's, it's critical. And from the PTSD recovery perspective, it's, it's the same thing, which I've already said. It's activity, not an event. And to get that sense of purpose back in your life, you know, because that's, that's part of the difficulty of transition and why a lot of people, they really, really hang on to their military identity. Um, and, and they always wave the I'm a veteran flag. Uh, uh, and, I'm not, and I'm not diminishing that. You know, that's fine. Right. But I just wanted uh, uh, the reason that they're doing that is they're not doing, they don't have that sense of purpose in what they're currently doing they're remembering when they did have a sense of purpose that's it's such a great point and that's the thing a lot of guys that i know have clung cling to their military service for the rest of their life and don't ever go and do anything of worth again they think they think or they feel Mm. well it's tough Uh, to compare to because it's such an intense it is (laughs) and it's such a big big thing that you're a part of it is really tough to compare anything to it but there are other things that also fill that void so so this is such a great segue because when I left the military, I had such a brotherhood. Everybody would literally lay down their lives for you. They literally would. Whether they were a jerk or not or you didn't get along that great or whatever, you could count on them when you got to a fight. They would literally jump on a grenade for you. They would protect you. They would shoot and take cover fire for you. Like that's, it, it, yeah. In today's society, uh, Curtis, I think that that exact thing that we're talking about right now is that I don't have to like you. I just have to be able to trust you. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and with all the division we have in our society right now, if only, 
we could have more of that. It's like, I don't have to like you. I don't have to agree with you. I just have to be able to trust you. That See, that's the, and that's the key to this whole Christian walk. And it's also the key to the whole military walk. Um, so for example, for example, my dad, I didn't like my dad growing up very much, but I loved my dad. So I would obey and be honorable and be respectful, but I didn't like the way he acted necessarily. Well, we can we can really put that imprint on everything in life. You don't have to like everything. And there's things I don't like. I don't want to go to work every day. Some days, some days I'd rather not work. I'd rather go right to retirement, but I've got to work. So there's these things that you don't like, but you do anyway. Uh, there was those guys in the military that I served with, the 28 of us that went overseas to Croatia. There was guys that didn't like me at all. We just had some awkward moments. and But yet, but yet we could put aside differences. We could put aside disagreements when it really counted. I remember there was uh, somebody had shot into the compound where we were staying and we spread out about 12 of us and we went across the field and we did fire and movement across the field looking for this shooter. And right beside me was this guy who we had a lot of differences and disagreements with. And over on the right was another guy who was his friend and not mine. And same thing was more on his side than mine, if you will, if there were sides to be taken. And there was just this disagreement, but immediately that's gone. Like there was none of that. It's like, he's going to die to protect me and I'm going to die to protect him. It was just this, that's what it is. And when you look at Christianity, the greatest tenant of our faith is no greater love has a man than he would lay down his life for his friends. And that's what I found in the military. So I found that in the military. Then I left the military expecting that I would find that brotherhood in Christianity because it looked like that's where it started from. It should be in Christianity the way it is in the military. Unfortunately... It's not because what people have in Christianity mainstream and generally, and not everywhere, but generally speaking is, they have a a building they attend, they wear their dressiest, nicest, fanciest clothes to this building they attend, they pay their money to this system to pay for the building and pay for salaries, and they don't actually do the acts or the works of service or the inviting people into their lives. They go on Sunday or they go on Wednesday nights like I used to do, they have a midweek service. They go two or three times a week. They can be very religious, but they're not actually laying down their lives for each other. So the lack of the brotherhood of what I found in the military, and like you are saying earlier, a lot of guys in the military, they cling for the rest of their life to their service in the military as the way they dress, the way they act. Like I, I know a lot of my military friends, if I see them and we go out to eat, they're going to wear like the green toque like you got oh, you're, there. You're wearing a 5'11 shirt right yeah, now. Yeah, and, that's uh, right. <laughs> uh, so I wore some military-looking paraphernalia today because I knew I was going to meet up with you and that sort of thing. But I, I rarely wear army gear because I don't associate my life with the military, even though it's greatly shaped who I am and I'm greatly glad of who I am. And I even call my company, that my painting company is called Veteran Painting. I, VP. I advertise the VP and the veteran painting and that sort of thing. But... It can't define me because I think I joined the military to do acts of service. I literally joined the military to do acts of service. I quit the military to become a Christian to do acts of service. And literally, that's what's missing in mainstream Christianity is you don't get the brotherhood. You don't get people laying down their lives for you. Um, And I just want to explain that laying down your lives for you. In the military, we would literally have a chance to lay down our lives for each other. We might a grenade might fall into the trench and there's four people in the trench and one guy would dive on it and he would be dead and everybody else would be saved because of him and that sort of thing. But in mainstream life, 
maybe 1% of people in their lives would ever be able to far less, I think, you know, or far less, like a a kid is on the tracks and you, you run and the train's coming and you dive and you push the kid out of the way and you get killed. Like very rarely is laying down your life physically going to happen. So what Jesus there is referring to is the emotional construct of it. And what I mean is, for example, I've got a really busy life and I'm really busy and we're got an acreage. I've got all kinds of chores to do. And you asked me to come and do this podcast. So because I love you and you're my friend, I lay down my life whatever busyness I have, and I'm coming here to do this because this is more important in that sense. Or I'm proving that you're important by the actions that I do. Um, And then I'm going to meet with uh, a lady who's in Calgary housing and is very poor, and she's got three kids, and she's very, very poor, and I'm going to meet with her tomorrow. So I'm laying down my life, and I'm going to do something for someone else. And that's the point of Christianity. Lay down your life for a friend. That proves through the action. It doesn't prove through that you say you're a Christian. It proves if you act, you're a Christian. And that's really the concept of faith, I think, that can bridge the gap between military life and getting out of the military and maybe coming into a Christian environment, if a person so chooses. The struggle I have with the mainstream Christian churches, that's not what happens. Like I said, you typically you go and you get served and you go home. You don't go and serve you go and get served because you go there and they tell you some good information and it pumps you up. You feel a little better. You go home, but you're not actually helping the community. You're just going and getting yourself some food, spiritual food. So I think that's where the lack is. Um, here's an example. So here's an example. I've got a, a military friend that I know that um, I served with in another province before I came here. And He's struggling. He's living in a basement suite. He's got major depression. He's been diagnosed with PTSD. He just plays video games most of the day. That's a common addiction. Um, and he's just zoning out. He just wants to go to an alternative reality that you can get in the game and just not have to think and to push aside. He's middle-aged, about my age, and he's just broken. And he just, major depression, taking medication, doesn't have very many family members there, many friends, doesn't do much, has a little cat which is probably the only thing keeping him alive. And he just hangs out there. So I phoned him last week and I said, uh, and I hadn't talked to him. I hadn't talked to him since probably 92. Yeah, so we hadn't talked since 92. (laughs) So we've talked twice now. And then I talked to him last week as well and I phoned him. And he's really been on my heart and God's really been putting him on my heart to say, and I said, look, why don't you move to Calgary? You're on Aish already. You'll still get the same amount here. Why don't you move here? I have a circle and a community of military guys and Christian guys. I said, you don't have to do anything with the church. That's not what I mean. When I say church, I don't mean a building and I don't mean attendance. I mean a group, a group of people that are dedicated to acts of service, that are kind, that want to help. And I said, so let's get here. Let's exercise. So he's about 300 pounds. He needs to be, his typical weight should be about 160, 170. So he's about double his ideal weight because of the depression. And so just this unnamed man, just as an example, this is just an example. What we should do is we should lay down our lives to help our brothers. And so I want him to come here. I want to hang out with him every week. I want to be his friend for the rest of his life. I want to talk to him on the phone. I'm not going to be able to uh, be around him and spend five or six hours maybe every single week, but I can talk to him every day on the phone. I can meet up with him on weekends. He can come to our little farm and maybe go for a horseback ride or a hike at our place. I can help him uh, with fitness goals and help him all of that. Some of the other military guys that I'm connected to in this community here in Calgary can help uh, bring him in and fellowship. We On Monday nights, they go, for example, I know all the guys, the Army guys meet at a pub on Monday nights and uh, they have a drink and I'm, I'm a non-drinker. I'm a Christian guy, so I don't drink, but 
I always try to go and just, you know, I'll have a ginger ale and I'll have some chicken wings and just that fellowship and that bond. It just helps guys have something that they feel like their service wasn't maybe in vain or that they have a connection or they need something. They need well, a community. Peer support. And on an earlier show that I did today, um, the efficacy of peer support is significant. Now, I'm always cautious because there's different definitions of peer support. Uh, there is activity-based peer support, which is what you're talking about. Just You just have to be there, but you also have to be a safe person to be around. Um, you don't want to increase the isolation by uh, doing the wrong thing, which is generally giving advice, which is bad advice, <laughs> you right, know, that, that's, right. that's unsolicited. You know, grabbing somebody by the arm and saying, come here, this is what you got to do. And they haven't asked for that not helpful you have to wait until they're ready and you can discuss what you've done but not have it as a suggestion of what they could do until they're ready to ask and eventually when they are ready they will ask and that's how i've got two guys into the system now two of the brothers um it took me over a year for one almost two years for the other before they were finally ready and i never told them that they had to do it i never told them what to do i just told them what i was doing I was right, recovering right. out loud. I say, well, this is what I'm doing, and this is the results. And, and every, then they'd start asking me about it. You know, they'd ask the buying questions, as <laughs> they'd say in sales. And um, so gently, eventually, and now they're both in the system, uh, well on the road to recovery and are, and are grateful for it. But that's, that's the type of peer support that um, anybody can do as long as they're careful about it. And now you've right. shown up, so, so you've shown you, up at the official peer support right. that, that we've done. Well, I, I want to jump in on what you said there, because it's so fantastic. Um, the point is it's the same with Christianity. We're not forcing this. We're not saying, here's what you need to do. We're opening the door and we're making it so um, affordable that they want to buy in there. And, th- and that's the struggle that I see is if we're doing acts of service and kindness and we let them know what's working for us, and then they are invited to join at some point. They might want to join because they get to, not because we're telling them they need to, because that, that'll never work. You can't, you can't make. It's got to be the open invite, like you were saying. And so it's the same from a faith-based perspective. Um, I think the biggest problem that we have with our faith-based perspective is we're forcing people under guilt and shame and fear of condemnation to do something. And they're like, well, why would I want to buy into that? That's guilt. I don't want guilt. I want something to relieve what I'm struggling with. And so there's this... If your life is so much better by your faith, prove it by your actions, and then I want what you have. That's the struggle that's missing is I want what you have. Kind of like you said, these two fellows are are seeing that it's working for you and you're, how did you say that, recovering out loud? Mm-hmm. And so that's what I do with my Christianity. I try to present my Christianity maybe a little out loud, but not about bragging or showing off, but letting people see by the demonstration of the faith and then they go, well, that guy's finding fulfillment in that. I want what that guy has. Well, I've always found that you're faithful out loud. And I've never once felt that uh, you were shoving it down my throat. Right. Never. Right. Yeah. And, and that's the point is you can't. It's the same as, like you said, recovery with these two fellows that want to get involved. You can't push it on somebody because then it's a sales pitch and it's, it's just stupid and it's not coming from the heart. And it needs to come from the heart and let it be a thing of the Lord. Now, what's interesting for me from my faith is through prayer and through feeling from God to call this guy and invite him to move to Calgary. Uh, one of the other things I didn't mention is I'd like to start a small business engine repair, uh, small engine repair business uh, and call it VP Engine Repair uh, as an offshoot from veteran painting. And eventually I'd like to quit and get off the tools so I don't have to physically work as hard as I get older 
and manage guys and run the office. So I would run the office, work at the front end, work on the parts delivery and the managing in the front desk, and then have guys in the back that repair the small engines. And I like to open a shop near our place. So I'd like this fellow to come and be part of that and be one of my employees and work for me and take the four-year program. And he's like completely interested and totally is into this. Now, where did that come from? I didn't phone him and tell him, this is what you need to do. I phoned and offered, if you will, a bit of a lifestyle change. And what do you think? And it was from God. So on the faith side of things, you can kind of be maybe what's considered maybe more bold and more asking, but that's if you have a connection spiritually to God to give you that direction, because it's not coming just from me thinking that. And so it totally clicked with him. But if I tried to do it, I guess, on my own without my spiritual connection, and I tried to just push people to come or else kind of thing, like using maybe a bit of a guilt tactic or, oh, you're going to go to hell if you're not a Christian and that sort of thing, it doesn't work because it's the wrong motive. It's the wrong understanding. If we really want to help, then be helpful. (laughs) Don't uh, make this about guilt and shame. It's got to be about the actions. And then they're going to want what we have. Like from a sales perspective, like how do you, how you worded it? So they want to buy in. They're going to start to buy in if they're not presented, if they're not pushed, but mm-hmm. they're invited more. I guess that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, and that's and that's the case with all PTSD recovery for sure. But um, I think we're about there, actually, brother. You know, right. we we could probably do eight hours straight, <laughs> like on the Joe Rogan show, but that's. Uh, uh, that's a bit much for our listeners. But. I want to. I want to quickly end on this yeah, one, go, if I can. Yeah, please do. Um, this is just a scripture from Matthew twenty-five, and it's Jesus talking. It's about actions, and it's really okay. about actions. Well, that's perfect. And it says, uh, "And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats." Now, what's interesting is he uses sheep and goats as a reference because sheep come when they're called, and goats are disobedient little jerks, and they have to be driven. So if we're, if we're coming to God because we're invited and we want to come, that's what, a, that's what a sheep is. A goat doesn't listen at all and does his own thing. Uh, then shall the king say unto them on his right hand. So these are the ones that are, are blessed. He says, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here's why. For I was hungry and you gave me meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Well, then the righteous are shocked at this and they say, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry? We didn't see you, Lord, physically hungry. And we didn't see you thirsty. And when did we give you a drink? When did we see you physically as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, well, verily I said unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these of my brethren, you've done it unto me. So that's the whole point. When we help the prisoner, the, the person that's in a prison, and so, for example, this friend of mine who's in a basement suite playing video games with depression, he's in a prison. That's a PTSD prison. He's been Absolutely diagnosed it with it. And so to visit him in his affliction, it doesn't say to convert him. It doesn't say to make him think your way of thinking. It just give him visit. Just be a friend. Just start, like you said, at that peer level and just friendship and opening the door and having a, having a tribe, having a group. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. When you did it to the least of my brothers, that's Christianity. That's when you did it unto me. It's the action. It's not a thought. It starts in a thought. That's great. But then let's act it out. Well, the the other side of it, which I've um, uh, mentioned before, is the hypocrisy that so many people see, which you have always been the opposite of, is, well, 
instead of being kind to those that are at um, in a rough way, like your friend in the basement, uh, people they're just judged. Right. You know, uh, right. when I was a womanizing, very wounded, hot mess. Sure. Uh, there are some people that are very religious churchgoers that instead of um, helping me and 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 talking to me um, and supporting me, it was exactly the opposite. I was simply judged and written off. Right. Right. As, and, as as opposed to empathy. Absolutely. And that's really the main. That's a that's a huge struggle because judge not lest you be judged. You know, Jesus says as well very clearly. Yeah. And the motive of why somebody does something is more important than what they're doing. It really is. Like, why was I womanizing and drinking? Why were you womanizing, drinking and fighting and angry and having so much rage? That's the point. It's, it's why. And, and so what's so cool about the Christian faith is if we could get to that point is God knows the thoughts and the intents. He knows our intentions and why we're doing it. So he actually can find we're way more innocent than what our actions show in our hearts as to why we do something. And if we can get break through that, through the hypocrisy of the human element of incorrect church, we can actually really start to help from a spiritual perspective, which I think we're lacking on, like greatly. So anyway, I'm very, <laughs> very appreciative of this moment and talking about it. And uh, it's been a really, really good conversation. What a fantastic conversation. And I think we've covered so much. And we will have you back on if that's all right, Curtis, because yeah, this absolutely. is just wonderful. But thank you. Thank you for being here. Um uh, earlier today, I recorded one on military sexual trauma, the first time I've touched on it. Right, very big and issue, yeah. Very big issue, and um, uh, and this is the first time that I've talked about uh, Christianity and faith-based uh, healing and how Christianity, done right. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> can, can support healing for PTSD, which of course is the entire point of this podcast. Absolutely. It's um, providing different modalities for different people. Curtis Sanheim. Thanks so much, brother. Yes, awesome, and look forward to the next time. You are listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. At Operation Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making peer support for post-traumatic stress disorder easily accessible, with a vision of a world where finding help and support is simple and the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. (laughs) 